There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with the truth Republicans do not want you to hear. President Biden's economic plan is working and is poised to get yet another boost. The House is expected to vote tonight on one of two big parts of President Biden's agenda, the bipartisan infrastructure framework, money for roads and bridges and ports, and that could be sent to Biden's desk to be signed into law as soon as it passes. So that's the upside. And it could be big news for people who work in construction and development and electric vehicle production, for example. What doesn't appear to be moving tonight is a vote on the second part of Biden's broad investment plan, the Build Back Better bill, money for things like childcare and climate change, basically jobs that will largely benefit women, low-income people, and the planet. To make this new strategy of decoupling these two bills, to make that work, and finally land this plane, President Biden made a national call to action on the heels of today's very strong economic news. The October jobs report showed job creation roaring back. 531,000 jobs were added last month and unemployment fell to a modern day record low of 4.6%. Now, it may be hard to process this very good news amid what is a real disconnect between how the economy is actually performing and how the economy feels at the kitchen table when incomes are up, but so are prices and your Amazon deliveries are super slow. But as President Biden welcomed the strong jobs report, he made clear the way to tackle those bread and butter issues is to keep moving forward. I want to say very clearly, if your number one issue is the cost of living, the number one priority should be seeing Congress pass these bills. Send the infrastructure bill to my desk. Send the Build Back Better bill to the Senate. Let's let's build an incredible economic progress, build on what we've already done, because this will be such a boost when it occurs. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi confirmed that there would be no vote on Build Back Better tonight to buy time to placate moderate Democrats who are demanding numbers on how the bill would be paid for. NBC News learned that as many as seven moderates had been holding out on the Build Back Better better part of the plan, requesting a congressional budget office score that could take weeks. Majority Leader Steny Hoyer said that he expects the Build Back Better bill to be passed the week of November 15th in time for a Thanksgiving gift to the American people. But it's not actually clear. If Democrats have enough progressive votes to pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill tonight or to pass Build Back Better in the Senate, even if it passes in November. Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal underscored that progressives must have both bills together, stressing that if moderates want a CBO score, her members are prepared to wait and vote on both bills together. So there are a lot of balls in the air. NBC News reports that President Biden called Congresswoman Jayapal this evening, and he continues to make calls to Democratic holdouts. Joining me now, Congressman Ro Khanna of California, Deputy Whip for the House Progressive Caucus. So, Congressman, thank you so much for being here. So I guess my, my pretty straightforward question is, is the Progressive Caucus going to give in and vote for the bipartisan infrastructure bill if it comes to the floor tonight? Joy, we are open to 
listening to leadership, at least some of us are, and uh, we're open to the CBC's proposal to be considered to get the president a win. Now, uh, I believe the best way is to have both bills voted on and to see if the six votes uh, of the moderates would actually vote yes. I think there's a good chance they would. But I have said that at least I and some others are open to finding a way forward. Let me, let me just play for you. This is um, Congresswoman Pamela Jayapal, and this was she was on with us last night, and she talked about the leap of faith that you all in the Progressive Caucus would need to take in order to vote for what we call, the, in shorthand, the BIF, the, the infrastructure, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Take a look. But I do believe that this is too important to people across this country, to the Democratic Party, to the president, for anyone to vote against this once it goes to the to the Senate. So, no, we don't have a full and complete assurance. We are taking a bit of a leap of faith, but we're trusting President Biden, who um, I believe has done a lot of work to assure himself that he's going to get 51 votes in the Senate. So here's the challenge, I think, to people in your caucus. I'm not in your caucus, obviously, but I could see why somebody like a, a Congresswoman Cory Bush would not have faith. I mean, you've got Joe Manchin driving around in his Maserati talking about we don't want an entitlement society. You've got uh, Kirsten Cinema just raking in money. This is the latest place we're finding out where she takes money from multi-level marketing businesses that want to kill the labor pieces of the bill. She's got all these other interests, big pharma and others that want to kill other parts of the bill. How do you know that if, in fact, your caucus members, your fellow progressive caucus members go ahead and give the moderates their bipartisan infrastructure bill, that all of them won't just literally leave y'all in the lurch and abandon Build Back Better? Because it sure feels like that's something they could very well do, both in the House and in the Senate. They could, Joy. I guess I trust President Biden. You know, I wasn't for him in the primary. I co-chaired Bernie Sanders' campaign. Uh, but I trust him. I trust the speaker. And what choice do we have? We are so divided in this country. The working class has been left out. We want to try to do something good for working families. We want to get, finally get money in their pockets. We want to finally have every kid go to preschool. We want to finally do something for the climate. People say, oh, we're not negotiating hard enough. It's because we want to pass something. And obviously, someone has more leverage if they're willing to walk away and burn everything down. But I don't want this president to fail. I want him to succeed. And I guess my plea tonight is, let's just come together as a party. Let's let this president, who won fair and square the nomination of the presidency, let him lead. Let's deliver for people. You know, the challenge is let him have a win and let him have a win. It feels like there are Democrats. First of all, the Republicans are off the table. They're doing stupid memes, showing up in like, let's go Brandon fashion gear. Like they're they're off the table. They're not helping at all. They are literally a non-entity moaning about critical race theory and stuff. So they're off the table, unfortunately. But among Democrats, there do it does feel like there are Democrats that think that just doing the infrastructure bill, because it was bipartisan, which is their favorite thing, because Republicans like it, and because it will, it will, it will impact very directly, let's be honest, men, <laughs> men in this country and get a lot of men back to work, that they're like, that's enough, that the women and the, the, the poor people, the people of color, the planet, that all of that can wait. Let's just get bills for the men. And that feels to me like Joe Manchin's position. I mean, he's said as much. He was like, push all the rest of it. The ladies and everybody else can wait till next year. 
Joy, but it's not President Biden's position. He gets it. He understands. He wouldn't be president if it weren't for the African-American community. And I think it's in his bones that he wants to deliver for those uh, who don't have opportunity. And I believe that he will follow through on climate. He was on the world stage saying America is going to do this. I believe he will follow through for universal preschool. You know, that's the biggest thing we can do for kids to give them an equal shot when they start first grade. So the question is, how are we going to come together in a 50-50 Senate with three votes in the House? Progressives have compromised. We've compromised time and again. And it's right that Mm -hmm. a lot of people were excluded. But we have to now come together. And the only way I see is to trust the president and the speaker on moving forward. Last question. You, you talked about you were a supporter of, of Senator Sanders uh, when he ran for president. Have you talked to him about what he would like to see the Progressive Caucus do? And, and if so, would you be open to telling us? I've talked to him over the past couple of weeks, and he uh, rightfully has been pushing for vision, dental, and hearing, the most popular provision in the entire bill. And he wants to get as uh, progressive a bill as possible. But you know, the one thing that people didn't appreciate enough about Senator Sanders is ultimately a team player. He wants this president to succeed, and he's not going to do something that jeopardizes that. So we, we're pushing as a caucus. I'm going back into the meeting. We want both bills to, to, to be voted on. But there are a number mm-hmm. of us now who are saying, Let's figure out a way forward. And, and the progressives are willing to put the party in the country first. How ironic. Uh, the, Bernie Sanders, the independent, is more of a team player with the caucus than it seems Manton and Cinema are. What a <laughs> world. Uh, Congressman Rokana, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time, thank as you. always. Have a great weekend. Uh, if you even get a weekend, let's bring in Juanita Tolliver, Democratic strategist, and David K. Johnston, founder of DCReport.org. I, I want to start with the, the, good, the good first before we go to the challenging. David K. Johnston, <laughs> this jobs report today was actually really good, you know, and it, it shows that the fundamentals, the structural, you know, underpinnings of the U.S. economy are actually strong. So why do you think that it doesn't feel like that for sort of the average person? But do you agree with me that actually this is a very strong report today on jobs? Oh, we've had an extraordinary nine months of job growth. Uh, Under Joe Biden, with the pandemic still underway, we've been adding an average of 600,000 jobs a month. Donald Trump, pre-pandemic, only added on average 187,000 jobs a month. So Biden's doing three times as well as uh, Trump, and yet he's in the pandemic. And if you take the full Trump administration, of course, he cost us 2.3 million jobs, the first president since Herbert, Herbert Hoover to leave office with fewer jobs than when he came in. So no, Biden's been doing very well. By the way, the job numbers would be even bigger if it weren't for government cutting jobs. There were over 600,000 private sector jobs created last month, but government, mostly state and local, shed about 73,000 jobs. Yeah, and and red states, I'm sure. You know, Juanita, this is one of the challenges for Democrats. It is just actually, you know, I'm old enough to to live through a a few of them, right? The the Clinton administration, I I was a kid when Reagan was president, but I can even remember just in my own household that the economy felt stronger under a Clinton or, you know, under President Obama than it did under Republicans. But Democrats, the voters in general, especially independents and Republicans, they tend to like have this tick that says Republicans are better on the economy. Let me put this chart up. It is just an actual fact. If you just go back and measure who actually helps the economy more, Democratic presidents just far outstrip Republicans. Herbert Walker Bush, under his administration, 2.63 million jobs created. Under Clinton, 22.9. 
W. Bush, 1.36 million created over his um, over his two terms. Obama, 11.56. You could just do this all day. Trump, as you just heard David K. Johnson said, he cost this country 2.94 million jobs. Biden already at 5.58. It is just an actual fact. GDP growth, same kind of story. It flip flops. It, it, it goes back and forth. And whenever a Democrat comes into power, it you know, they clean up the mess of the previous president on the economy and they don't really get credit for it. Do you understand why Democrats don't don't tend to be able to get credit for the the fact that they're just better on the economy. I think it goes to something that the president mentioned in his remarks today is that people need to feel the impact and know who to thank, right? So he's talking about you need to feel it in your lives and in your bank accounts. And that's what I can tell you he's likely going to be fixated on for the rest of his presidency because he's like, no, I delivered this for you. Expect it to be a major message in the midterms. And honestly, if these numbers had come out just a week ago, things might look different (laughs) in Virginia because it literally emphasizes the point of we are doing so much better. The recovery was not hampered by the Delta variant like the GOP was screaming across the country for the past few months. And in fact, Biden's investments in the economy are working. I think Biden continuously talking about the real world impact and the tangible benefits that people will be feeling is going to help them. And it changed their minds when they respond to these types of polls that show that they don't trust Democrats. Because when you deliver consistently, when people see a change in their bank accounts, when people can afford their bills, they feel that. And that's something that Democrats need to remind them time and time again. Hey, we did that. That was us. Yeah. You got, but Democrats don't like to brag. Like Democrats are like way too modest about it, right? I mean, the shots and checks was like wh- why Biden got elected. Um, even GDP, I'll put GDP up. Most people don't care about that. But David K. Johnston, you know, on these two bills, like the 2008 recession, the George W. Bush era recession was like a man session. This current downturn under pandemic was like a woman's session. Like women lost a lot of ability to work, a lot of dis- a lot of access to lack of access to childcare, having to have your kids stay home that largely wound up falling on women who had to stay home and work from home. So this recession really impacted women hard. Can you get in your head the explanation of why somebody like a Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema would want to basically crush the bill that would get women back to work and only do the hard infrastructure bill? Uh, the behavior of those two senators is sort of beyond understanding, but there is an important issue in here, uh, I think, Joy, and that is I don't think the White House is selling this the right way. You can hear President Biden again and again refer to his spending $3.5 trillion. No. He wants to invest less than $3 a day per American so that we will have a healthier country, a wealthier workforce. Women who want to work will be able to do so because they'll have childcare available and they'll be able to afford it. But instead, the White House and the news media, especially across the board, we talk about spending and this big, scary, Mm -hmm. humongous number that means nothing when it's really an investment. And even if we pass the half bill for the human infrastructure, that means it's less than a dollar and 50 cents a day per American to make us better off in the future. This is about investing in our workforce, in our children, the most valuable asset we have in America are the brains of children that need to be given rigor and thought so they can have good lives in the future. And that should be the focus of the debate. And I I really blame the White House for not properly selling this. Democrats need to learn what the Republicans know, how to market. 
and how to appeal to your your instinct and your gut and not just do these brainiac things. I mean, just the term human infrastructure. Can we get rid of that? Because nobody knows what that means. Like, come on. Uh, anyway, uh, Juanita Tolliver. Yeah, just say what David K. Johnson just said. It'd be a lot easier. Juanita Tolliver, David K. Johnson. Thank you both very much. Okay, up next on the readout. Rudy Giuliani puts on his clown shoes and his big red nose and says under oath, no, 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 you can't expect me to verify any of the vote rigging nonsense coming out of my mouth. Also, we're keeping a close eye on the trial of the men accused of murdering Ahmad Aubrey. Today, prosecutors laid out their case, and you might think you know what happened at Attica, but 50 years after the deadly prison uprising, there is a groundbreaking new documentary. The filmmakers join me tonight. Plus. Colin Powell was a great lion with a big heart. We will miss him terribly honoring a towering public servant who was also a good and decent man. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. We are awaiting news from the select committee investigating January 6th, following word from its chairman yesterday that they are set to issue up to 20 new subpoenas. This forthcoming batch could double the number of witnesses under subpoena, bringing the total to 39. Meanwhile, we have a not so surprising admission from Trump's former lawyer and peddler of election disinformation. CNN has obtained video from one time Mayor Rudy Giuliani's sworn deposition in a defamation suit filed by a former executive of Dominion Voting Systems. Among other things, Giuliani discussed his false claims that Dominion could manipulate the vote count and that it had done so in Venezuela. In that video, Giuliani said under oath that he doesn't attempt to confirm. He didn't attempt to confirm the veracity of all of his wild allegations before repeating them publicly. It's not my job in a fast moving case to go out and investigate every piece of evidence that's given to me. Otherwise, you're never going to write a story. You never come to a conclusion. The other thing is the Trump campaign knew those allegations of fraud were bogus before they made them. As The New York Times reported, they had already prepared an internal memo on many of the outlandish claims about Dominion and had determined that those allegations were untrue. Joining me now is Tim O'Brien, senior columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, and Glenn Kirchner, former federal prosecutor and MSNBC legal analyst. And Glenn, I'm going to start with you. If you have Rudy Giuliani saying it's not his job to investigate whether the claims he's making about a company, Dominion, alleging that they rigged the election, that he doesn't have to verify they're true. And then on the other hand, the Trump campaign had already attempted to invest to investigate those claims and it found they are not true. Where do you think that leaves Rudy Giuliani? 
That leaves Rudy Giuliani on the losing end in a defamation suit. You know, it's pretty transparent, Joy, what Rudy is trying to do here. He's trying to persuade people that, you know what, I may have been negligent. I may have been grossly negligent. I may have even been reckless, but I wasn't malicious. I didn't intentionally lie. He's holding up his own recklessness as a shield against a jury someday concluding, no, you intentionally lied. So here's the good news. Legally speaking, it's a very short walk from recklessness to malice, to intentionally lying. And no jury in the world has to believe Rudy Giuliani when he says, I was only negligent or I was only reckless. He appears to have been intentionally lying. So he's got trouble ahead in the defamation suit. Would it, would it surprise you, Tim O'Brien, if I know your answer, but I'm still going to let you, you talk about that. I mean, the tr- it does feel like he's kind of on the outside looking in, OK, that he could be the guy who winds up being thrown over the side because he did go out and make the claims. He was the face of this big lie for so long and in so many ways, even on, on the ellipse on the day of the insurrection. Would it surprise you if he wound up being the guy get, that gets hung out to dry? Uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all. You correctly predicted my answer, Joy. But, it, you know, it. it <laughs> Uh, Donald Trump is not a sophisticated man. Donald Trump is not a, uh, educated man really, but he has a reptilian, uh, sensibility about how to survive. And he has always made sure to have people around him who do his dirty work. So he has deniability and the power he's had over those folks to convince them to put themselves in harm's way, uh, as either money or, or sort of basking in what they perceive to be this reputational glow of Trump. And Giuliani has been this person who's had his face up against the glass for years with Trump and has been wanted to be, has always wanted to be let in. And, and now Trump, to a large extent, has taken advantage of him. But Rudy Giuliani is also an adult. You know, let's not forget that in the years prior to uh, Giuliani becoming America's mayor, uh, when he was a prosecutor in the Southern District, he operated a, a, a tad bit like Savonarola, and and he made he, he he became famous for his mob cases. But the cases he gave, he made against insider traders on Wall Street, a lot of those later fell apart. He engaged in a lot of spectacle, marching people out of their offices in handcuffs. Uh, but he was doing a lot of it for self-aggrandizement, as much I think more so than it for the rule of law. And and that part of his character got forgotten. I think after nine eleven. He went after squeegee handlers in Central Park. Yeah, um, he has always wielded the law like a cudgel. And he's been pretty, I think, willing to bend the rules when it suited him. And you're seeing that come to home, home to roost here. That is the Giuliani that I remember from living in New York. The America's mayor part, not so much. Um, let, let's go back to the um, January 6th. Um, investigation. So Associated Press is reporting that Jeffrey Clark, the former assistant attorney general who tried to use the Justice Department's influence to overturn the election, has declined to be fully interviewed by the select committee. He did that today, ending a deposition after around 90 minutes, according to the Associated Press. What what does that tell you, Glenn, if he was cooperating and then becomes uncooperative? You know, it it tells me that he's probably unwilling to answer questions that might incriminate him, but he's not trying to invoke his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, because that never looks good. So he's probably engaged in lots of, you know, bluff and bluster and misdirection. And then if he ends up, you know, leaving before the questioning is over, it's probably because he's trying to follow Trump's playbook. He's probably trying to get Congress to force this into court 
So they litigate his refusal to testify. And then what will he do? Well, he'll try to run out the clock by weaponizing the court delay, just as, as Trump has done successfully over and over again. Don McGahn did it successfully for two years. And if this moves into the courts, let's hope that the courts have learned their lesson and they don't continue to let nefarious litigants use them by weaponizing the court delay, because that is a recipe for none of these issues ever getting resolved. Exactly. Let me read you what the chairman uh, of the one six commission, Benny Thompson, said. He read you a statement saying Mr. Clark's complete failure to cooperate today is unacceptable. He's had a very short time to reconsider. He's a very short time to reconsider and cooperate fully. We need the information that he's withholding and we are willing to take strong measures to hold him accountable to meet his obligation. So uh, I think that, you know, he should expect to maybe get subpoenaed uh, again. Um, Let's go back to Rudy Giuliani for just a second, because, you know, Tim, I'm going to give you and this is this is a, a fun one. The Four Seasons Land landscaping company was one of, of Rudy Giuliani's darkest moments and funniest moments. There's actually a documentary that we're running on MSNBC about it. I want to play a little clip of it. Take a look. I got a phone call from my son, Anthony, and he said, Mom, this is bigger than we think. And he sends me a picture while I'm talking to him. And Rudy's sitting at my desk and the plaque in front of my desk says, boss lady. I looked at my husband and I said, I think we've got to get over there. You know, Tim, I, I wonder if you think that perhaps Rudy Giuliani's entire reputation, you know, that stemmed from his handling of 9-11 was as much a fraud in some ways as Donald Trump's. Because I think people have been surprised by where, how sort of low he sunk. Unless you people like me who lived in New York when he was there and and saw him, like you said, arresting squeegee men and being cruel. (laughs) I mean, I think I think I think Rudy Giuliani rose to the occasion on 9-11. I think he calmed people down at an uncertain moment. I think people felt a lot of gratitude for the sense of um, community and responsibility he brought to that event. But it clearly was an aberration. I think the Rudy Giuliani and, and I think he got a lot of traction out of that, both in his business life um, and and professionally and politically. Um, uh, and, and I think that's one of the reasons that Trump didn't sort of excommunicate him entirely during those years is Trump wanted to be present around that as well. But the reality is Rudy Giuliani has often been a thug and he's been an irresponsible thug and his own, you know, his own. He is such an interesting case, his personal history, you know, his father did time in Sing Sing um, for armed robbery. Um, He was an enforcer later with possible mob connections. And his son goes on to go after the mob um, in a, in a, in a very vitriolic way. Um, Yeah. I think that he is. And and I think who you're, the person you're seeing now is this sort of Shakespearean plunge into the reality of who he is. Exactly. We're seeing who he is now. The families of uh, Amadou Diallo and Abner Louima and many, many, many other, you know, those families understood who Rudy Giuliani was from the very beginning. Everybody else is just catching up. Glenn Kirshner, Tim O'Brien, thank you all very much. And by the way, uh, you do not want to miss this. This Four Seasons Total landscaping documentary about the real company behind Rudy's most embarrassing post-campaign mistake. It airs Sunday night at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on MSNBC. Do not miss it. And still ahead on the readout, opening statements today in the trial of three men accused of killing Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia. prosecutors laid out their case straight ahead. It's Monday night. 
It's Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Hi everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Today was the first day of the trial of the three men accused of murdering Ahmad Arbery. 25-year-old Arbery was shot and killed early last year after Gregory McMichael, a former police officer, and his son Travis and their neighbor William Roddy Bryan chased him down, cornered him, and shot him three times with a shotgun while filming the incident. They each faced nine charges, including murder, false imprisonment, and aggravated assault. They pleaded not guilty. Lead prosecutor Linda Dunikowski told jurors that months prior to the killing, the owner of a vacant house under construction had been investigating people accessing his property, which Arbery had purportedly done. But at that point, police had already determined that Arbery had committed no theft, no felony, and the McMichaels had been informed of that fact. Months later, on the day he was killed, Arbery was spotted jogging away from the same house. It was there that Gregory McMichael saw Arbery. He's assumed the worst and has absolutely no immediate knowledge of any crime whatsoever. So Gregory Michael makes his driveway decision in this case. This is where it all starts, right at this moment, in that driveway. Five minutes later, Ahmad Arbery's dead. Prosecutor Dunikowski then explained what they did next. Greg McMichael chooses specifically, knowingly and intentionally, to arm himself with a handgun because he hauls ass inside his house and gets his revolver. He gets his son, Travis McMichael, who gets his Remington 12-gauge pump shotgun. The McMichael's friend and neighbor, Roddy Bryan, then joined the chase. Defendant Bryan sees Mr. Arbery running away from the white pickup truck And he makes an assumption, because he has absolutely no idea what's been going on. And he joins the McMichaels in chasing down Mr. Arbery. Lawyers for the McMichaels and Brian are claiming self-defense and that they were trying to make a citizen's arrest because they had, quote, reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion that the person had just committed a felony. But Dunikoski pointed out that at no time did Arbery say anything during the confrontation, nor did any of the defendants say they were making a citizen's arrest. Jurors will show him the full video of the killing, which Brian had shot on his cell phone. It was a horrifying moment in the courtroom. Arbery's father couldn't handle the images. His mother made an audible gasp and an emotional cry as she watched the video of her son dying. After a recess, the defense presented its opening arguments. The lawyer for the younger McMichael, Bob Rubin, argued that they were armed, quote, for protection and pointed the gun at Arbery to, quote, de-escalate the situation with me now. David Henderson, civil rights attorney and former prosecutor. And uh, David, thank you so much for being here. 
Give me your assessment of the opening of this trial, the opening arguments from both the prosecution and the defense. How do you think they both did? Do you think either was more compelling? And Joy, keep in mind, as I say this, I am not indifferent or impartial when it comes to this case, but I have to look at the evidence in terms of how the trial is developing so far. And if I have to say one side won over the other, I say the defense won as far as opening statements go, because you have to remember they're persuasive for those of us who already have our minds made up about this case. But overall, from the prosecution, the argument was too long. It was based on a shaky theme, focusing on assumptions instead of saying specifically what the McMichaels and what Brian did. It also had a lot of legal mumbo jumbo in it, which doesn't play well with the jury. The one time the prosecution broke from that was to call one of the defendants by his nickname, which helps to humanize him for the jury, which is something you should leave it to the defense to do, not the prosecution. Uh, You know, the defense is relying on this Civil War era law, claiming they were trying to make a citizen's arrest. And this is a Civil War era law that stated that it was legal in Georgia for people to arrest someone, civilians, to arrest someone where they had, quote, reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion the person had just committed a felony. It was later repealed amid uproar um, uh, 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 over the shooting, but had remained the law largely unchanged since 1863. This is essentially a legalized lynching law. Let's just be honest. That it allowed, because this wasn't black citizens could just go legally arrest a white person in Georgia. This was used <laughs> no. by white citizens to, quote unquote, arrest any black person they wanted and, and kill them. And, and so I wonder if the fact that the, the vibe and sort of the, the atmospherics of the way that Georgia has operated really since the Civil War era plays into this with a bunch of jurors, many of whom are probably gun owners and probably thinking, you know, I don't know that I want the liability for killing somebody because I made an assumption because I saw a black guy jogging. I don't know that I want to be in the position of these defendants. No, that's exactly right. And that's part of the reason why the way jury selection was handled was so important. Whenever you have a sitting judge saying, I believe that there's intentional discrimination in jury selection, and then he doesn't do anything about it. And anytime you've got lawyers who have the chance to change venue, And they say, we know our clients are known in this community, and they choose to Mm. stay in that community for the trial. That tells you everything you need to know about what their expectations are. And that's one of the elephants in the room I wish the prosecution had addressed more directly. People who own guns, often in the South, think they can use those guns whenever they feel threatened, even if they caused the threatening situation to begin with, which is exactly what happened here. And you have to remember that for all the facts we're discussing right now, originally a prosecutor heard them and chose to sweep this case under the rug. And he was an elected official. So if he chose to do that, what does that say about the people who elected him to office, many of whom are now on that jury? And, you know, the NRA has really been, been big about using, you know, sort of dummy, you know, sort of matching legislation all over the country, particularly in southern states, to get those things encoded, right? That you can use your gun. You can use it fatally. This case reminds me so much of the George Zimmerman case. Um, the ju- this is some of the rulings. The prosecution's motion was granted um, to exclude evidence of minute levels of THC in Arbery's system. They're going to, because the defense wants to try to make him out to be somebody who was on something. And, you know, the THC is not being on something. Um, the judge said photographs of Travis McMichael's pickup truck featuring a vanity plate of the old Georgia flag that featured the Confederate battle flag will be allowed and shown during court. The judge also ruled the defense could not mention that Arbery was on probation. Do you think those things in any way will impact this case? Because it really feels like the George Zimmerman Trayvon Martin case to me. It feels like the George Zimmerman case, and there have been countless examples. If you look at the way self-defense laws play out, when you've got a situation like this, white people shooting black people, they're 
claiming attacked them. It also plays out when you only have one black person on the jury. We can track numerous trials where it didn't work out the right way under those circumstances. So I absolutely think those things matter. And also, Joy, what you're hinting at is a broader discussion of the way people are treated in this country because it hints at George Zimmerman. And when you think about those cases... The new definition of CRT is that you've got cases like George Zimmerman. And on the flip side, you've got cases of people like Philando Castile, Alton Sterling. And let's even be honest, Tamir Rice falls in there, too, where they are shot and killed under circumstances where someone like Kyle Rittenhouse, not the case we're talking about, but still a similar theme, can walk by the police without even so much as being questioned. And if you think that's not going to play a role in this trial, you're missing the point. A hundred percent. And the man who massacred nine people inside of Mother Emanuel Church got a cheeseburger lunch uh, from police. That is why there is right. such a thing as critical race theory in law schools, because we have an endemic in, in, you know, inequality in our system of justice by race. That's just reality. Sorry if that makes you feel sad, people out there that don't like CRT. David Henderson, thank you very much. Really appreciate you. Up next, a brilliant new documentary offers a definitive look at the events surrounding the five-day standoff between prisoners and police at Attica Correctional Facility in 1971. Award-winning director Stanley Nelson and co-director Tracy Curry join us next. Stay with us. There's a certain meaning, a feeling in the word Attica, the name of the maximum security prison in New York State, where in 1971, 1,200 inmates took more than three dozen guards and civilian employees hostage, demanding more humane treatment and better conditions. What resulted was a massacre by state police that left 29 inmates and 10 hostages dead. But you may not really know that part, that it was the police who were fully responsible for those deaths. No charges were ever brought against authorities for those killings in what is now known as the largest prison rebellion in U.S. history. We know the word Attica, but a documentary now tells the story behind the name. They wanted to use those weapons. Put your hands in the air and you will not be harmed. You will not be harmed. You will not be harmed. But that was Man. He was waking up America. Somebody had to take a stand. Joining me now, the filmmakers behind Attica, Emmy Award winning director Stanley Nelson and co-director and dear friend of mine and this show's Tracy Curry. Thank you both for being here. Uh, Stanley, I'm going to start with you. The, the two things that struck me the most about this documentary were that day, the first day of freedom um, after the hostages had been taken and these inmates were in the yard free and that exuberance that you feel viscerally in the documentary and then the sense of just raw vengeance by the police and the, the desire to kill and humiliate as many of those men as possible to punish them no matter what the consequences were. Um, that's what struck me the most. In this story, what struck you the most and made you want to tell this story? Well, I think it's it says so much about uh, America. You know, it, it's about not only uh, prison and, and prison reform and, and not only about race. It's a it's a story about power. You know, we bring in Nelson Rockefeller, the governor uh, of New York and one of the richest men in the world and and Richard Nixon, who are on the phone talking about it. So it's about government. Uh, it's about so many things. Um, and it's it's. 
a roller coaster ride from the first day, the exuberance of, of the uh, prisoners when they take over to the murders and the killings of the last. It's really, it, it's like a thriller that, that, that you couldn't have written if, if you were a really great writer. Yeah, and Tracy, let me play another piece of it, because this is also a story about the people who were caught in the middle, because it wasn't just a brutality against black people. It was actually wound up being brutality against these white guards as well. So let me play a clip. And this is Dee Quinn Miller, who's the daughter of one of the guards, whose name was William Quinn. Take a look. I've never received an apology. I've never received an apology. And for me, that's a pretty big deal. What does money do when you don't have your dad or your brother or your uncle. How does that replace anything? And I think it was the state's way of saying, we're going to give you this money and we want you to go away. Tracy, you did the uh, these interviews. Um, and, and so talk a little bit about the process of bringing out these stories, in some cases remotely, because we were during the pandemic and you had to do a lot of these things through the magic of Zoom plus cameras. Talk about that. Yeah, Joy. Um, well, it became apparent really early on after doing research that there were certain categories of people we had to hear from in the film. So we had to hear from the former prisoners. We wanted to hear from the people in the village of Attica because it's not just a prison. This is a place and a community. Um, the, the observers, the media, all of these various people. And so it was really a process um, of taking the time to find whoever I could um, who was alive that could talk uh, with about their firsthand experience of this, um, who was willing and able to talk about it. As you can imagine, this was a traumatic event for every single person that was involved. And so it was really just a process of one, finding people, two, taking the time to really kind of talk to them and gain their trust, which interestingly, the pandemic kind of allowed me because we're all in our, I was in my little pandemic boxes. We all were nothing to do but talk to people. Um, and then eventually just kind of giving them the space to feel it and experience it and remember it the way that they did. And uh, the end result is what you see in the film. Absolutely. Let me play another one of the, in, one of the inmates. His name is Arthur Harrison. He's a former prisoner. Take a look. We would like the press to come in, including the television cameras. That transformed everything. Because now the prisoners had a worldwide audience. A roll of toilet paper would have to last you a month. You have to be a magician or tear up papers out of, you know, the, the books and stuff like that to wipe your behind and stuff like that. Guys were complaining about the basic things like toothpaste, toilet paper, um, a change of sheets more than once a month, things like that, clothes being clean, personal hygiene things, being treated like human beings. Stanley, this, it, it strikes me this is a film also that's about manhood and democracy, because these, these men wanted to be treated as human beings, as men. And they also formed their own sort of version of democracy, multiracial democracy in this prison. What do you make of that? I mean, that's one of the most incredible things about the story. The, the first day that they take, take over uh, the prison, they uh, vote on leaders or who they want to lead. Um, there's there's white prisoners and, and black prisoners and Latinx prisoners. And, and they 
they uh, talk about being united now that that they are one. Um, and and it has to be said that that we that we talked earlier about the fact that the guards and the prison system kind of kept them separate. So the white prisoners are given more privilege and of course are resented. But when they get out in the yard, they realize that that no, we are now all just prisoners, and we have to unite um, if we want to survive. Yeah, indeed. And Tracy, this is also a critique in many ways of the media, the way the media covered it at the time and the way the media covered it afterwards. As somebody who worked in the media um, yourself and comes from this side of the of the of the storytelling world, what do you make of that critique and uh, what should people take from that? Yeah, Joy, it's something that I think you and I used to talk about all the time, which is sort of the perils of access journalism, um, because what happens is that all of the media is gathered outside and on that last day um, when uh, the State troopers go in and kill 39 people. Um, it is reported that 10 of the hostages were killed by the prisoners. Um, and this is in all the major news outlets in the country. Um, and that is the story that everyone believes, only to find out less than 24 hours later after the medical examiner has looked at the bodies and seen that they were all killed by gunshots. And of course, none of the prisoners had any guns, um, that that was a lie, that it was the state troopers that mm-hmm. had killed them. Um, and the media failed um, in that account. It- it was indeed a media fail. But you know what has been a success? You, Tracy Curry. And I'm going to embarrass you now. And I know this is something you do not enjoy, but it is your birthday. So I want to wish you a happy birthday on national television. And oh my God. Kai Ma, who produced this segment and who is your good friend and produced this segment, she she put me up to it. So we were we were in a, in a, oh in a, in a, in a bit of a cabal. A lot of us who worked with you before, Lorena and Kai and Hank and all of us, we wish you, but the whole okay. team. Happy birthday, oh, my friend. Thank you so much, Gloria. Thank you. Thank you, Tracy Curry. Congratulations to Tracy Curry and Stanley Nelson. Y'all are amazing. Attica premieres tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern on Showtime. And up next, our tribute to the late Colin Powell. We'll be right back. Today, Colin Powell, our country's first black secretary of state, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and National Security Advisor, as well as a four-star general was honored with a funeral service at the beautiful National Cathedral. Powell was a man of deep faith, as many noted today, and the service reflected that, with U.S. Army Sergeant First Class Adiza Jabril singing one of my personal favorite hymns, Precious Lord. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am As we've seen with so many of these funerals, the presidents sat in a row, Joe and Jill Biden, Barack and Michelle Obama, George and Laura Bush. 97-year-old Jimmy Carter didn't make the trip, and our most recent former president, of course, wasn't there. Bill Clinton is still recovering from his hospitalization a few weeks ago and did not attend, but his wife, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, was there as well. Powell received heartfelt eulogies from his deputy secretary, Richard Armitage, former secretary of state, Madeleine Albright, and his son, Michael. As I grew to know him, I came to view Colin Powell as a figure who almost transcended time. Colin Powell's legacy of service to the country he loved will long survive his passing. I've heard it asked, are we still making his kind? I believe the answer to that question is up to us. To honor his legacy, I hope we do more than consign him to the history books. 
I hope we recommit ourselves to being a nation where we are still making his kind. Listen real carefully. And you might hear our Savior say, Colin, welcome home. And here's your starry crown. Powell was 84 years old and will be remembered as one of the greatest public servants of our time. And that's tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.